it's on. Okay. Hello. Whoa, it is on. Hi. Um, if you could start um, heading in and finding a seat. I see some, um, some more friends out in the lobby. If you can start moving your way in, that would be fantastic. We're going to get started here in just a few minutes. Um, I want to welcome you all to our ninth annual Literary Night. I can't believe it's already been nine years. Um, and is it the 10th? It is, it is the 10th annual Literary Night. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, and yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to see so many repeat faces year after year that really is a testament to how wonderful this event is, that there are people who are um, looking forward to this all year. Um, so it's great to see so many familiar faces. Also wonderful to see faces that I, I don't know. And um, meeting Roger tonight, his very first time. So it's always great to have um, newcomers here and, and welcome. Especially welcome to those of you who are um, maybe not from this church and who are visiting um, us for the first time. Um, we are just excited beyond measure to have you here tonight. So my name is Christine Cornet. I am a church member and a huge fan of the Bell Press Library. Um, after our program tonight, I invite you to grab a donut and a cup of cider, um, peruse the resources that we have available in our library, um, many of which are set up out in the lobby. Um, you can also explore our two library locations, both in the welcome room straight back and upstairs in the upper rotunda. Uh, literary night serves two primary purposes. Um, the first is uh, to have fun, to come and um, hear from some wonderful and knowledgeable people about great works of literature, and Christina Dudley too. <laughs> um, to hear about great works of literature and how we can glean truths from those works and apply them to our lives. Um, the second function is to raise money for our library ministry. Um, and after our program here this evening, you'll have an opportunity to, um, to give to that fund. Um, if you are visiting here tonight, um, again, we are thrilled that you are here. And I would encourage you to just walk past those baskets. Um, if Bell Press is your church home and you are a fan of the library, I would really encourage you to give generously because this is our one fundraiser of the year, and it's a, a treasured resource here at Bell Press. Um, the theme of tonight's program is Money Makes the World Go Round, uh, and there is a line in an old country song that says there's only two things that money can't buy. That's true love and homegrown tomatoes. Um, in, in that economy, uh, the Dudleys are doing very well. Um, not only do they have each other, which is no small thing, uh, but they have three beautiful and brilliant children. Um, funny, too. Um, and if anybody can grow a tomato in western Washington, it is Scott Dudley. Um, true fact. Um, so other than being a fantastic farmer, Scott also, minor detail, has a doctorate in um, English literature from Stanford University and a master's in divinity from Princeton. Um, and has been leading our congregation here for the past 10 years. His lovely wife, Christina, um, has also a master's in English Lit, also from Stanford. Um, she is the author of five books. Um, her sixth book will be released next week. Congratulations. Um, and she is the blogger of the Bellevue Farmer's Market um, and a formidable Scrabble opponent. I want to welcome all of you. It's good to see all of you here. Uh, this is always fun for my wife and I to do, though we, are, we do always wonder, why does anyone come? But we're grateful that you are here. Um, 
We're talking about money. Of all the symbols uh, that have humans have ever invented, uh, money is the most powerful and it drives an awful lot of our behavior. Uh, and it's interesting to talk about on the literary night because like words, money is just a symbol. It doesn't mean anything. You know, the, 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 the letters D-O-G actually have no real connection to the furry thing in our homes. It's just a social convention that makes words mean something. Money is the same. It doesn't mean anything. It's just paper. But by social convention, it comes to symbolize value, value of a lot of things, value of the time it took to earn it, uh, value of ourselves because someone uh, thought we exchanged our service or our goods. Someone thought that what we had to offer was worth value, so they gave money for it. So the money symbolizes our own value. Uh, the more someone gives us, the more value we've been able to give to someone. So there's a lot invested in the symbol of money, and it is very human. Even when we were still hunter-gatherers, there were systems of exchange. So money goes deep into the human psyche, and we have a lot of conflicts about it. And the three works we're going to look at tonight have a lot of conflicts around money, sort of the tensions. We love it, we hate it, we have mixed feelings about it, we know we need it, we want more of it, and yet we're suspicious of it, and we're afraid of losing it. And we are afraid of the ways it can sort of corrupt even the most sacred things like our relationships. Also, the works we're going to look at were all formed in a capitalist economy. And capitalism is also conflicted. Uh, on the one hand, it has produced a great deal of freedom and has allowed folks to move up more than any other economic system ever has. That's the upside. But there are some downsides of capitalism. And the three works we're going to look at kind of examine those downsides. And I want to be clear at the start, I am pro-capitalist. So just to save some emails. Um, <laughs> but it does have some darker sides. And we're going to be looking at those, uh, some of those in the text uh, that we're going to look at. Someone once said that capitalism is the worst economic system except for all the others. And I think that's, that our three works kind of show that in different ways. Uh, all of that, all of those anxieties, you can kind of see them coming to play in the clip I just showed you from Gentlemen's Prefer Blonde in 1953. And Marilyn Monroe plays Lorelai Lee, a gold-digging woman on a cruise out to marry a rich man. And the song shows the ways that money can invade every aspect of our lives, including what should be most sacred, which is our romantic relationships. And it is also a very subversive song. It doesn't seem like it. But it is. This is in the middle of the 50s, at the height of our economic power as a nation, when we were locked in a battle against communism versus capitalism. Think of Richard Nixon and Khrushchev having that debate, and where did they have it? In a kitchen. And Nixon points to all the appliances, and he says, look, this is what capitalism can do. And your, your system can't do this. Look, look at what it can do. Right? And so we're in the middle of all of this, um, and, and, and then this song, this movie, kind of shows some of the darker sides of capitalism and the way particularly it can invade our relationships. And I think it's significant that Marilyn Monroe sings this because she was one of the first female stars to market her sexuality. Uh, and, and just think of that term, market. And she created a brand for herself, really one of the first to do this dyed her hair, changed her name, created a brand that could be marketed. Now, there'd been pinup girls before, but Monroe took it to a new extreme. And the movie, and she sort of markets herself as sex object, and the movie trades on that. The movie kind of works with that and looks at the, 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 there's sort of a fine line. She's trying to marry for money, but there is a fine line 
between marrying for money and what we would call prostitution, right? And the movie gets really uncomfortably close to some of that. Charles Dickens notices this or notes this in his preface to the third edition of Oliver Twist, where he's responding to complaints from people about the character Nancy in the book who is a prostitute. And they're upset that he put her in the book at all. And he makes this snarky comment in his preface. He said, you know, you don't like to look at Nancy, but if a rich woman marries a rich man, the word we use that for that is romance. Isn't it interesting how, vir- how vice can go parading as virtue? In other words, saying, you know what, there's just that fine line between marrying for money and prostitution. There's a line, but it's, it's thin. And the song is trading on that. It explicitly links Monroe's sexuality to material gain. Men grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. And just in case we don't understand what she's talking about, where does she point? Right? To her body. A particular part of her body. But square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape. Again, alluding to the female body, diamonds are a girl's best friend. So diamonds and the female body, they become linked female sexuality as commodity. Plus, a girl's best friend is no longer who, it's a what. Right? Friendship even gets commodified and traded. And I think Monroe here is just kind of pushing capitalism to its furthest logical conclusion. Everything is for sale. Now she does it in a fun way, which folks, helps folks deal with some of the anxieties that's underneath all of this. And there's a lot of humor in it, and it's fun. Um, but, it, but there's some tension there that she's pushing on. It's also very risque. I mean, this is 1953, right? He's your guy when stocks are high, but beware when they start to descend. It's then that those louses go back to their spouses. That's my favorite line. <laughs> those louses, right? And it's funny, but what she, she's talking about adultery, which is one of the subplots of the movie. And it's not just female sexuality that's commodified in the movie. It's also male sexuality, because if you notice the subplot, the guy who's trying to have an affair with her ain't all that good looking. Right? You can be as ugly as you want if you're a guy, as long as you got money. Right? Men want beauty, women want money, the world is admirably arranged. Everything's for sale. That's the peril of capitalism. It's also the promise, isn't it? Because if I can think of something other people want... I get money, which sets me free. I can rise in my station in life. I don't need to depend on family or friends or the government. I'm free. So freedom to buy and sell brings social freedom, but it is also kind of the anxiety that's underlying capitalism. And Monroe is the perfect person to sing this song. She 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 was a better actress than she was given credit for. I think she's a pretty good actress, but she was brilliant at marketing herself. Nobody did it better except one other brunette who dyed her hair blonde and became a genius at marketing herself, Madonna. Now, I'm not a huge fan for lots of reasons, but Material Girl, which I'm going to show you in a minute, is a very smart video where she shows that she very much understands she is doing exactly what Monroe did. And it's done in 1984, so 31 years after Gentlemen Preferred Blondes and about 31 years from where we're at. Clearly alluding to Marilyn Monroe, right? There are places where frame by frame it is exactly the same, and yet there are places where Madonna changes it. The fan is different than Monroe's fan, and she uses it differently. Uh, She uses it more as a weapon, and you can see that in the guy that rolls down the stairs kind of dead. Like Monroe is saying, you know, I'm not going to be a victim to my own uh, marketing like Marilyn Monroe was. I can can control the genie I'm letting out of this, this bottle. 
And also the, the words, while the words of the songs are saying I'm a material girl and I want material things, right, the images, the backstory that you're seeing in some of those images is of a rich man who's trying to woo her with expensive gifts, but she's not interested. So at the end of the video, he pays a huge amount of money to buy an old truck gets, that looks kind of like he's poor, gets rid of his fancy gifts and gives her daisies instead, and then she falls in love with him. So the song says, I'm a material girl, but the action of the video is saying, is rejecting materialism, except for the irony that the guy wins Madonna by paying a lot of money to look poor. So you have to be rich to look poor to win Madonna, right? So it's really, it's a, it's a smart video. It's a complex video. that seems to say, can't buy me love, but on the other hand, oh yes you can. And maybe it's both. And maybe that's the tension. Right? Maybe that's part of the tension of how money commodifies all of our relationships. Which takes us to custom of the country. Scott and I put this together like the day of. So it's always kind of a surprise how this is going to work. Um, yes, I had custom of the country. Which is a fabulous book. How many people got a chance to read it? Uh, okay. <laughs> I just want to see how many Downton Abbey fans out there? Okay, I want you to know the guy who does Downton Abbey says Custom of the Country is one of his primary inspirations, okay? So maybe you'll pick it up. Um, yeah, she's looking at uh, the same time period as Downton Abbey, and she has the same fancy dresses and all that kind of stuff and money, uh, but Wharton has this very, very sharp anthropological eye. And um, she takes this theme of marriage as a commercial transaction, and she does two significant things with it. The first thing she does is she makes a, a heroine an anti-heroine. We're going to talk about that. So she makes Undine Sprague, the delightfully named Undine Sprague, into an anti-heroine. And she gives the story a particularly American spin. I thought I was going to come up after Scott talked about all the British stuff, and lo, I am before him. So, um, so... We've been looking at all American stuff. So here's some more American stuff. Um, so she is not the first anti-heroine. If you ever read Vanity Fair, 1847, uh, Custom of the Country is 1913. So Vanity Fair, 1847, gives the world Becky Sharp, who is delightful. She is this, um, I call her a wraparound. When a character is so loathsome, they become delightful. She is a wraparound because she is um, this super ambitious social climber, and she doesn't care who she's got to walk on to get to the top. So she's wonderful. Um, and, <laughs> and unlike Undine, uh, Becky doesn't seem to have any blinders on, right? She knows what she's after, and she's going to do it, and she's not telling herself any stories. Undine is a little different. Undine does tell herself stories and um, wear these kind of blinders. And I think the, the, um, the belief in her own innocence is part of Undine's Americanness, which I will get to. Um, so Undine is always discovering that the world holds more out there that she didn't know. Um, she comes from this little Midwestern town called Apex City, little fictional place, and uh, she's always wanting to move on and get up out of there, and her dad is kind of this businessman who's trying to get her out of there. So it says, her first struggle after she had ceased to scream for candy or sulk for a new toy, had been to get away from Apex in summer. And it talks about how she's got this friend named Indiana Frusk, and they're kind of always competing with each other. And Indiana brags about her stuff, and she brags about her stuff. And so finally, um, they get away 
for the summer to this place called Mealy House, which is a terrible name, right? Um, they say, whither her parents, forsaking their squalid suburb, had moved in the first flush of their rising fortunes so they can afford to get out of Apex in the summer and go to Mealy House. But then, um, then Mealy House is not good enough because Undine hears, oh, at school Undine met other girls whose parents took them to the Great Lakes for August. Some even went to California. Others, oh, bliss ineffable, went east. And so next, they go to a staring hotel on a glaring lake. Um, they move up from Mealy House, and they go to this hotel on the lake. But unfortunately, Undine there she meets, there she made the acquaintance of a pretty woman from Richmond whose husband, a mining engineer, had brought her west with him while he inspected some mines. And the southern visitor's dismay, her repugnances, her recoil from the faces, the food, the amusements, the general bareness and stridency of the scene were a terrible initiation to Undine. There was something still better beyond then, more luxurious, more exciting, more worthy of her. She once said to herself afterward that it was always her fate to find out just too late about the something beyond. But in this case, it was not too late. And obstinately, inflexibly, she set herself to the task of forcing her parents to take her east the next summer. So then they go to this place in Virginia. And Undine is really happy. She's queening it over everybody. And then Miss Wincher comes. And um, the Winchers, it appeared, found themselves at Potash Springs because of an illness Mom had. And then um, as soon as they could leave this dreadful hole, they were going to Europe for the autumn. And this Miss Wincher, she doesn't even notice Undine in all her glory. And that's the final cutting blow, right? And then, um, so Undine discovers, it says, uh, let's see, blah, 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 blah. They, Miss Wincher, they sh she shuts herself off from all the nasty, crude people at this place. Um, and she makes fun of all the girls who are belling it around town and making fun of the picnickers and all that kind of stuff. Undine turned sick as she listened. Only the evening before, she had gone on a buggy ride with a young gentleman from Deposit, a dentist's assistant, and had let him kiss her and given him the flower from her hair. She loathed the thought of him now. She loathed all the people about her, and most of all, the disdainful Miss Wincher. It enraged her to think that the Winchers classed her with the hotel crew, with the bells who awaited their Sunday young men. The place was forever blighted for her. And the next week, she dragged her amazed but thankful parents back to Apex. And then uh, it says, but Miss Wincher's depreciatory talk had opened ampler vistas, and the pioneer blood in Undine would not let her rest. So it's lovely. This is a, um, for a very depressing novel, Wharton loves depressing novels, she has these moments of comedy, like this one, where she talks about Undine, her social ambitions are actually because of her pioneer blood, right? Um, this is what Americans do. They conquer new territory. And if there's no new territory to conquer, they go back and they conquer and reconquer the old territory. So this is what Undine does. Um, and it's interesting, Scott showed that clip from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which was a 1925 novel written by Anita Loos. And Anita Loos basically takes Undine and turns her comic. She, she turns her blonde and comic. And um, Undine, if you, if you find Wharton too depressing, try Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. It is a hilarious book. And um, Anita Loos even steals a joke, which I'm not going to read to you because it'll take too long. But Undine has, maybe I will, um, steals a joke from there. And... Um, it's interesting, 
this little copy from the library says, The Great American Novel for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and who should say it but Edith Wharton. So, um, anyways. Okay, so, when, so Undine's first marriage, she makes it to back east to old New York, and she sees this old New York society that is very closed to her and very closed to new money, though it is beginning to be poor and beginning to be interested in this new money. And um, so Undine, she manages to charm this man named Ralph Marvell, and she goes to dinner with his family. She wanted to be noticed, but she dreaded to be patronized. And here again, her hostess's gradations of a tone were confusing. So this is her future uh, mother-in-law. Uh, let's see. Mrs. Fairford made no tactless allusions to her being a newcomer in New York. There was nothing as bitter to the girl as that. But her questions as to what pictures had interested Undine at the various exhibitions of the moment and which of the new books she had read were almost as open to suspicion since they had to be answered in the negative. Undine did not even know that there were any pictures to be seen, much less that people went to see them. And she had read no new book but When the Kissing Had to Stop of which Mrs. Fairford seemed not to have heard. On the theater, they were equally at odds, for while Undine had seen Ulalu 14 times and was wild about Ned Norris in the soda water fountain, she had not heard of the famous Berlin comedians who were performing Shakespeare at the German theater and knew only by name the clever American actress who was trying to give repertory plays with a good stock company. The conversation was revived for a moment by her recalling that she had seen Sarah Bernhardt in a play she called Leg Long, and another which she pronounced Fade. But even this did not carry them far, as she had forgotten what both plays were about and had found the actress a good deal older than she expected. Um, a little inside joke for people then, Sarah Bernhardt, very famous actress, and two of her plum roles were in Leg Long, this famous Edmund Rostand play, and then one called um, Fed, right? Uh, um, Racine, a Racine play, but it's funny, she calls them leg long and fade. And that is the exact joke that um, Anita Lowe steals because she has, she has Lorelei Lee go to Paris and she calls the Eiffel Tower the Eiffel Tower, like an eyeful of something. <laughs> and um, it's the same thing. And then she says of the Tower of London, Lorelei says, they make a great fuss over a tower that really is not even as tall as the Hickox building in Little Rock, Arkansas, and it would only make a chimney on one of our towers in New York. So she is totally stealing Undine Sprague here. Okay, but I wasn't, that took a lot of time and kind of didn't have anything to do with money. Okay, so Lorelai seems not to understand, just Lorelai, Undine and Lorelai both don't seem to understand where money comes from. They just know they need it, right, to buy the things they want. But Lorelai gets to be a heroine because she has this heart of gold, gold digger with a heart of gold. And, but underneath Undine's gold digging, there is nothing at all. Um, <laughs> Her husband, her first husband, Ralph, he marries her. He takes her away to Italy to be all romantic. She hates Italy because all they do is sit around and look at scenery and stuff, and she hates it. And it says, Marvell, at first, had fancied that his own warmth would call forth a response from his wife, who had been so quick to learn the forms of worldly intercourse. But he soon saw that she regarded intimacy as a pretext for escaping from such forms into a total absence of expression. Meaning, when Undine turns on, it's for everybody else, when she's on a stage. But when it's just him, when it's just Ralph, her husband, she totally shuts down. She's got nothing there. And um, that, that is a sad moment of disillusionment for Ralph. If you ever want to see um, 
I think a wonderful portrayal of disillusionment in marriage. Just read their honeymoon. Just read uh, the Marvel's honeymoon. It is, it is amazingly, amazingly done. Okay. Um, so, yeah. It's quite clear, especially from the title, The Custom of the Country, that Undine is not just this type of gold digger and anti-heroine, but she is meant to stand in for America as a whole, that somehow she embodies our country, the custom of the country, right? She embodies it. And what is it she embodies? She embodies this idea that you can get what you want no matter what the cost. You can move on. You can move up. You can pursue that happiness that Thomas Jefferson promised, right? You can pity those who don't succeed, and, but don't let them drag you down, right? Don't let pity drag you down. You've got to move on. And so Undine moves from Apex City in the Midwest. She conquers old New York, and then she gets sick of Ralph because Ralph is old New York, and he doesn't know how to make money. And then, um, then she scales the heights of European society. And she has to get rid of her first husband to do it, but she manages to marry this French count who then grandpa or whoever dies and he becomes a marquis. So she has really made it. And even then, um, she's not quite happy because it turns out her French marquis is much more interested in tradition and all these things that have value to French people for some reason. And she ends up dumping him for Elmer Moffat, who in the book functions as her counterpart. Elmer Moffat is this guy who starts with nothing in Apex City and becomes this fabulously rich millionaire. And so they end up together. And he probably made his money through underhanded dealing. So this is America, Wharton is saying, right? America is like Undine. It is beautiful. It is vivid. It is garish. It's hungry. It's restless. It craves attention. It is fooled by flash and glitter. There's this telling scene when, the, um, when Undine and her Marquis are running out of money, and Undine gets this brilliant idea that, oh, he sticks her in this chateau all the time, and she has to hang out in the chateau because it's cheaper than being in Paris. So um, she gets this brilliant idea that, oh, they've got all these fabulous tapestries here. I bet if we sold those, we could make some money, right? So she has a guy come in to appraise them. Um, okay, the morning afterward, Raymond came into her room with a letter in his hand. Is this your doing? He asked. His look and voice expressed something she had never known before. The disciplined anger of a man trained to keep his emotions in fixed channels, but knowing well how to fill them. The letter was from the dealer, right? Um, who begged to transmit to the Marquis de Chelles an offer for his Boucher tapestries from a client prepared to pay a large sum. This client turns out to be Elmer Moffat, right, who eventually marries Undine. What does it mean, Raymond continued as she did not speak. How should I know? It's a lot of money, she stammered, shaken out of her self-possession. She had not expected so prompt a sequel to the dealer's visit. Her husband was still looking at her. It was Fleischauer who brought a man down to see the tapestries one day when I was away at Bonn. He had known then. Everything was known at Saint-Desert. She has to live with her mother-in-law who spies on her, right? She wavered a moment and then gave him back his look. Yes, I sent for him. You sent for him? He spoke in a voice so veiled and repressed that he seemed to be consciously saving it for some premeditated outbreak. Undine felt its menace. But the thought of Moffat sent a flame through her, and the words he would have spoken seemed to fly to her lips. Why shouldn't I? Something had to be done. We can't go on as we are. I've tried my best to economize by not going to Paris and buying new dresses. 
I've scraped and scrimped and gone without heaps of things I've always had. I've moped for months and months at Saint-Désert and given up sending Paul, her little son, to school because it was too expensive and asking my friends to dine because we couldn't afford it. And you expect me to go on living like this for the rest of my life when all you've got to do is hold out your hand and have two million francs drop into it. Her husband stood looking at her coldly and curiously, as though she were some alien apparition his eyes had never before beheld. Ah, that's your answer. That's all you feel when you lay hands on things that are sacred to us. He stopped a moment and then let his voice break out with the volume she had felt it to be gathering. And you're all alike, he exclaimed, every one of you. You come among us from a country we don't know and can't imagine, a country you care for so little that before you've been a day in hours, you've forgotten the very house you were born in, if it wasn't torn down before you knew it. You come among us speaking our language and not knowing what we mean, wanting the things we want and not knowing why we want them, aping our weaknesses, exaggerating our follies, ignoring or ridiculing all we care about. You come from hotels as big as towns and from towns as flimsy as paper, where the streets haven't had time to be named and the buildings are demolished before they're dry and the people are as proud of changing as we are of holding to what we have. And we're fools to imagine that because you copy our ways and pick up our slang, you understand anything about the things that make life decent and honorable for us. So, ouch, right? It is, he is he's speaking about the American character, which she embodies, and belittling it. But Undine gets hers, because eventually um, his brother has to marry an American heiress to save the family finances. And Raymond has to part with the tapestries. So to Elmer Moffat, which is like the ultimate her, right? He wanted to sell him. Finally, he was willing to sell him, but to anyone but Elmer Moffat, and Elmer Moffat got him. So, so Raymond gets conquered as well, right? The new world order doesn't turn out to be so different from the old world order, but nobody cares about blood anymore. Now it's all about this new money. Um, and they use, whoo, I'm doing okay. The, throughout the book, there, there's all this language of social Darwinism. Basically, the weak have to be winnowed out, and the weak is like the old guard in New York. It's like Raymond with his silly chateau he needs to calm down about, right? Everything, they have to give way before this new world order of new money. And everything is also described in financial terms. We talked about sexuality as a commodity, right? Everything is commodified. So when Ralph decides to marry Undine, his old, his old New York family does not like her because she's, she's nouveau riche, she's vulgar, she's all these things. They don't like her. And he thinks to himself, the daughters of his own race, old New York, sold themselves to the invaders, the nouveau riche, right? The daughters of the invaders bought their husbands as they bought an opera box. It ought all to have been transacted on stock exchange. That's Ralph's idea of it. And then there's another time when Undine is trying to string a lover along and keep him interested. And Wharton writes, she knew it was a mistake to make herself too accessible to a man of Peter's sort. Her impatience to enjoy was curbed by an instinct for holding off and biding her time that resembled the patient skill with which her father had conducted the sale of his bad real estate in the pure water move days. She, she, she compares Undine holding herself back from a lover to see what she can get out of him to the way her dad played the real estate market back in Apex City to make their money in the first place. And then finally, when Undine wants to marry the Count, she has, he's Catholic, so she has to have her marriage annulled, so she's trying to fundraise to make this happen. And so she decides she's going to go tell Ralph, you know what, I got custody of our son, and I want him back now. And 
Ralph is like, what am I going to do? And then somebody finally talks some sense to him and says, Undine just wants money. She just wants money, right? Just give her some money and she'll let you have the boy. And it says, um, Ralph thinks to himself, to keep Paul, the son, would cost a lot of money because Undine would be ashamed to sell him cheap, right? The son becomes this thing that can be bought and sold. And Ralph thinks the reckoning between himself and Undine should be that that the reckoning between himself and Undine should be settled in dollars and cents seemed the last bitterest satire on his dreams. Which is interesting, right? When when we go through a divorce, a lot of it comes down to dollars and cents, and that's part of the bitterness of it, right? That love becomes a matter of dollars and cents. Um, I'm gonna. Oh, we're doing okay. Okay, I'm skipping ahead. Um, so Ralph's problem in Undine's eyes is that he's always been impractical because he's all interested in culture and relationships and going to Italy and looking in, in each other's eyes and feeling something, right? Um, and indeed, when, when Ralph is trying to raise money to keep his son, who can he go to? He doesn't know how to negotiate this new world, so he goes to Elmer Moffat, right? And he's like, help me raise some money. So Elmer Moffat is trying to explain to him this financial deal he can get in on the ground floor, right? And uh, Wharton says this. El so Elmer Moffat's trying to explain the scheme. Ralph tries to pay attention. He tries to follow. But through the intricate concert of facts and figures, there broke the shout of a small boy racing across a suburban lawn. When I pick him up tonight, he'll be mine for good, Ralph thought as Moffat summed up. So Ralph's brain cannot even work that way. The way Undine's brain works, the way the new brains work, he can't think in these facts and figures. All that happens is he sees his son. That's what matters to him. So the saddest connection that War Wharton draws between money and love comes at the end. Ralph is dead. Um, she's gotten rid of the French count. And she's, so she's got her little son again, right? And um, so there's poor little Paul. And now he's living this big, giant house because mom has married Elmer Moffat. He's lost his dad. He's lost the stepfather he got kind of fond of. And um, so he goes trailing through the house trying to figure out where he belongs. He looks at all these things. All, all he can find are things. And then his mom's old massage therapist comes in and... Um, she starts saying, oh, you know, look at this beautiful house. You lucky, lucky boy. And oh, look, I, she has all these press clippings of his parents and stuff. And it says he, he didn't know how to say. He didn't want to hear about the things. He wanted to hear about them, right? He, he's still speaking that old language. Okay, but then mom and stepdad come home. As he reached the landing, he saw that the ballroom doors were open and all the lusters lit. His mother and Mr. Moffat stood in the middle of the shining floor, looking up at the walls, and Paul's heart gave a wondering bound, for there, set in great gilt panels, were the tapestries that had hung in the gallery at Saint-Désert. There are the tapestries, right? Well, Senator, it feels good to shake your fist again, his stepfather said, taking him in a friendly grasp, and his mother, who looked handsomer and taller and more splendidly dressed than ever, exclaimed, Mercy, how they've cut his hair, before she bent to kiss him. Oh, mother, mother, he burst out, feeling between his mother's face and the others, hardly less familiar on the walls, meaning the tapestry faces, that he was really at home again and not in a strange house. Ah, gracious, how you squeeze, she protested, loosening his arms. But you look splendidly, and how you've grown. She turned away from him and began to inspect the tapestries critically. Somehow they look smaller here, she said with a tinge of disappointment. 
Mr. Moffat gave a slight laugh and walked slowly down the room as if to study its effect. As he turned back, his wife said, I didn't think you'd ever get them. He laughed again, more complacently. Yeah, I don't know how, if I ever would have if General Arlington hadn't happened to bust up. That was the Raymond's brother had to marry the daughter there. They both smiled, and Paul, seeing his mother's softened face, stole his hand in hers and began, Mother, I took a prize in composition. Did you? You must tell me about it tomorrow. No, I really must rush off now and dress. I haven't even placed the dinner cards. She freed her hand, and as she turned to go, Paul heard Mr. Moffat say, Can't you ever give him a minute's time, Undine? She made no answer, but sailed through the door with her head high, as she did when anything annoyed her. And Paul and his stepfather stood alone in the illuminated ballroom. Mr. Moffat smiled good-naturedly at the little boy and then turned back to the contemplation of the hangings. Guess you know where those come from, don't you? He asked in a tone of satisfaction. Oh, yes, Paul answered eagerly with a hope he dared not utter that since the tapestries were there, his French father might be coming too. You're a smart boy to remember them. I don't suppose you've ever thought you'd see them there. I don't know, said Paul, embarrassed. Well, I guess you wouldn't have if their owner hadn't been in a pretty tight place. It was like drawing teeth for him to let them go. And then Paul feels this surge of anger he's never felt before because, you know, it's like, oh, it was, you took something so precious to my stepfather. And it ends with Mr. Moffat saying, lucky you, you are going to be one of the richest boys in America. Ellipses, right? And it's like the richest boy in America whose life is completely devoid of love. It's very sad. But, you know, Paul didn't get a, ha a happy ending, but Undine kind of gets a happy ending, and um, Wharton took a lot of flack for that, but it's like, oh my gosh, you had this total vixen who just trampled all over everybody, and she gets off scot-free, married to the rich guy, getting what she wants, but Undine does not get everything she wants, because um, it turns out she's throwing this giant dinner at the very end of the book, and... Um, these, these certain people have refused to come. And she talks to her husband, and, and she says, well, why wouldn't they come? And he said, oh, because, um, you know, he's an ambassador, and you're divorced, and you can't be an ambassador and be with a divorced woman. And so she thinks to herself, I can never be an ambassador's wife because I'm divorced. And so this whole thing opens up, and it ends with this lovely sentence. Even now, however, she was not always happy. She had everything she wanted, but she still felt at times that there were other things she might want if she knew about them. <laughs> so, so that's Undine. <laughs> Do you need 30 seconds to catch your breath? We always put too much in these things. Take a minute. You can stand for 30 seconds if you want. You're all right. All right, I want to switch to Oliver Twist, and I am guessing that there is some familiarity with, uh, with this one. Uh, he, has, he has passed into uh, legend, the Artful Dodger, Fagin, Please, sir, can I have some more? Right, these are well ingrained in our, in our culture. It's Dickens' second book. It has some flaws. Notably, it turns on two very improbable coincidences, but it is also brilliant and moving. Uh, it is very autobiographical. Uh, when Dickens was 12, his father was arrested for debts. The entire family was put into prison, which was customary at the time, uh, except for Dickens, who was sent to a blacking factory where he was horrified to <clears throat> be next to street urchins. He thought of himself as a 
gentleman who was up and coming and suddenly he's with street urchins pasting labels on uh, shoe polish uh, 12 hours a day. And he was horrified. It scarred him deeply for life. And Oliver Twist is the working out of his anxieties about wealth and poverty and social status. It is a story he rewrites, I think, in his greatest work, Great Expectations, and also in da David Copperfield. Uh, Oliver is born to an unwed mother uh, who dies in childbirth, and from the beginning, poverty haunts him. Um, he is sent to an orphanage, and the woman who runs the orphanage is given seven pence, half penny, uh, to, for each uh, orphan that she has in her care, and she has many of them. And Dickens says this, seven pence, half pennies worth week, uh, per week is a good round diet for a child. A great deal may be got for seven pence, half pity, penny, quite enough to overload a child's stomach and make him uncomfortable. The elderly female was a woman of wisdom and experience. She knew what was good for children, and she had a very accurate perception of what was good for herself. So she appropriated the greater part of the weekly stipend to her own use and consigned the rising parochial generation to even a shorter allowance than was originally provided for them, thereby finding in the lowest depth a deeper still and proving herself a very great experimental philosopher. Everybody knows the story of another experimental philosopher who had a great theory about a horse being able to live without eating and who demonstrated it so well that he got his own horse down to just one straw a day and would unquestionably have rendered him a very spirited and rampacious animal on nothing at all if he had not died four and twenty hours later. <laughs> and so this shows the, both the, Oliver's poverty but also the way money can help make us convince ourselves of things that aren't true. Uh, that the woman who runs the orphanage thinks she is doing them, a, the orphans, a favor by not feeding them too much and making them uncomfortable, right? And he goes on to talk about how many of them die and fall into the fire, and, but that, that no one in the, in the parish believes that that's happening because they always sent the people from the board of directors, and they always sent the beetle, that's the uh, parochial officer, they always sent him ahead a day before to let the woman know that the board was coming. And the children were always well presented when, they, when, she, when the board arrived. So the, the ability of money to delude us, and we start to think we're doing good when we're not. Oliver is then transferred from the orphanage to a workhouse. Several years before this book was written, England revised their poor laws so that instead of giving welfare, the poor were cho uh, had to go to the workhouse, uh, supposedly to save money for the government and also it would be better for the poor. And the, work, the, it, the conditions were kept horrible so that people wouldn't want to go there. They worked long hours and they were fed nothing but this thin gruel. So soon after getting there, Oliver, uh, the, the boys, select someone by drawing straws to go and ask for more of this thin gruel after dinner. And if you've never read the book, you absolutely know this scene because um, it's become so iconic. Oliver goes forward, please, sir, I want some more. The master was a fat, healthy man. So in contrast, right, to the orphans, the master is a fat, healthy man, but he turned very pale. He gazed in stupefied astonishment on the small rebel for some seconds and then clung for support to the copper. The assistants were paralyzed with wonder, the boys with fear. What? said the master at length in a faint voice. Please, sir, replied Oliver, I want some more. The master aimed a blow at Oliver's head with a ladle, pinioned him in his arms, and shrieked aloud for the beetle. That's the uh, officer who runs the workhouse. The board were sitting in the solemn conclave when Mr. Bumble, that's the beetle, rushed into the room in great excitement and addressing the gentleman in the high chair said, Mr. Limpkins, I beg your pardon, sir, Oliver Twist has asked for more. 
There was a general start. Horror was depicted on every countenance. For more, said Mr. Limpkin, compose yourself, Bumble, and answer me distinctly. Do I understand that he has asked for more after he had eaten the supper allotted to by the, by the, by the dietary? He did, sir, replied Bumble. That boy will be hung, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. I know that boy will be hung. And nobody controverted the prophetic gentleman's opinion. This is a very iconic scene, and that word more drives the rest of the book. It drives everyone in the book. It's like that last line, Undine, you know. There might have been more she wanted had she known about it, right? And, and in fact, more is what drives capitalism. This is 1837. Capitalism is well underway. And the quest for more is what a market economy depends on. Consumers can never be satisfied. If they are, the economy crashes. So Oliver's just being a capitalist, and he's chastised for it. And it's that desire for more that drives every person in the book. Um, and, and you see it in the next chapter, where because of his transgression, they decide to uh, sell Oliver as an apprentice for five pounds. But then when someone comes to pick him up, they start dickering and trying to kind of get him down. And the guy who's trying to buy Oliver tries to, you know, get more money out of him and all that. Everyone wants more, including Oliver, who in the end ends up being adopted by a middle-class man. And that's the promise of capitalism. It can provide more. The downside is some people have more, and they don't share. And then even people become commodities. So eventually, Oliver is sold to an undertaker, or given, uh, yeah, he's sold to an undertaker, and there's another apprentice there named Noah Claypole, who is also uh, apprentice to this undertaker. And it says, Noah was a charity boy, but not a workhouse orphan. So there's a distinction, right? No chance child was he, for he could trace his genealogy all the way back to his parents. <laughs> they lived hard by, his mother being a washerwoman and his father a drunkard, a drunken soldier discharged with a wooden leg and a diurnal pension of two pence, half penny, and an unstatable fraction. The shop boys in the neighborhood had long been in the habit of branding Noah with epithets of leather and charity and the like, and Noah had borne them without reply. But now that fortune had cast in his way a nameless orphan, at whom even the meanest could point the finger of scorn, he retorted to, on him with interest. This affords charming food for contemplation. It shows what a beautiful thing human nature may be made to be, and how impartially the same amiable qualities are developed in the finest lord and the dirtiest charity boy. So what Dickens is trying to show is Noah has just a little bit more money than Oliver, and because of that, now we've got class distinction, right? Even within this, even within this poor uh, uh, sort of working, we've got this class distinction. But Dickens wants to show it's a fiction, it's a symbol. The money confirms the symbol of gentility, the symbol of being upper class on Noah, but he is less genteel than Oliver. And Dickens is trying to show money is just this symbol. So Oliver runs away to London, and he meets the artful Dodger, a boy who is his age, who takes him to Fagin's house. Fagin is a Jew who receives stolen goods and then he sells them. Um, from this point on, Fagin, in the book and in the film, Fagin and his gang of orphans who pick pockets and then give the stuff to Fagin and then he sells them, he's a fence. Uh, he becomes the center of the story, Fagin does. Oliver is really a blank canvas. Dickens wants to keep him completely innocent and in order to do that he can have no personality. Right? So Oliver is actually not very interesting, but Fagin is fascinating. And the book is wildly anti-Semitic, 
refers to him as the old Jew or the merry old gentleman, which is a euphemism for the devil. And uh, you see in that film adaptation, where Alec Guinness' portrayal of him is shockingly anti-Semitic, especially since we are only three years from the Holocaust when this, when this was done. And the book is very anti-Semitic. In fact, in that scene, and it goes on, you see it later, Fagin is actually roasting a sausage over a fire with a pitchfork. Right? So, like, literally the, the devil, right? And then with, Fagin, you know, the big nose that, that Alec Guinness wore and the, the Yiddish accent. And Fagin is a very subversive character. He is both savior and villain. Because up until this point, Oliver has not been well fed. And here's Fagin with meat. In fact, in an earlier scene, the, Mr. Bumble says, don't give him meat. Don't give orphans meat. They'll just rebel. Right? And now Oliver, for the first time in his life, sees meat. Right? Interestingly enough, a sausage that Fagin is roasting. Right? He's Jewish. Right? He's roasting sausage. So interesting enough. Right? So he's Oliver's savior. Right? Suddenly, for the first time in his life, Oliver has enough to eat. And Fagin becomes central to the whole story, but also not just to the story, the economy. See, he's a fence, which, which is a receiver of stolen goods who then sells them. He is a criminalized version of what capitalism depends on. The middleman, the merchant, he steals things from the middle class and then he sells them to the middle class. He keeps the commodities moving. He keeps the money moving, which is what capitalism needs. Back in the Depression, the economists just kept saying, we just need to get the money moving again. That's what capitalism is. And fence has a double meaning. It's what he does, receiver of stolen goods, but it's also his role in society. He's in the middle. He's the fence between uh, buyer and seller, between respectable capitalism and, and criminal capitalism. And he's in between. He's the fence between the two. This ties him directly to his literary predecessor, Shylock, in The Merchant of Venice. Shakespeare's writing at the very beginning of capitalism, and Venice is the center of where it starts. Antonio is a merchant, so we're thick into it. His friend Bassanio is in love with a woman named Portia. And this is how he first describes Portia. In Belmont is a lady richly left. That's the first thing we find out about her, right? She's, she's rich, and she is fair, and fairer than that word, of wondrous virtues. Sometimes from her eyes I did receive fair, speechless messages. Her name is Portia, nothing undervalued. To Cato's daughter, Brutus's Portia, nor is the wide world ignorant of her worth. So immediately, Portia is commodified, right? She's, that's the first thing we find out about her. Bassanio doesn't have enough money to court Portia. So he borrows it from Antonio, who borrows it from a Jew named Shylock at interest. And, and if he can't pay it, he's going to get a pound of Antonio's flesh. If Antonio can't pay it, Shylock takes a pound of his flesh. Shylock is portrayed as the villain, as is Fagin, but he is the necessary villain. As a moneylender, he is essential to Bassanio being able to woo Portia. He's also essential to capitalism. Right? Ca capitalism can't function without money lending. But that creates all kinds of anxiety in, in 16th century Europe. Is it okay? Is it okay to get interest? Is it okay to make money by lending money? And the play keeps trying to make Shylock the villain, but it can't. So, for instance, when Antonio uh, goes to borrow the money to give to Bassanio, this is what Shylock says to him. Signor Antonio. Many a time and oft in the Rialto, you have rated me about my monies and my usances, that is, lending money for interest. Still have I borne it with a patient shrug, for sufferance is the badge of all of our tribe. 
You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and sped upon my Jewish gabardine, and all for use of that which is my own. Well then, it now appears you need my help. Go to then. You come to me and you say, Shylock, we would have monies. You say so. You that did void your room upon my beard and foot me as you spurn a stranger cur over the threshold. Money's your suit? What should I say to you? Fair sir, you sped on me on Wednesday last. You spurned me such a day another time. You called me dog and for these courtesies, I'll lend you thus much money. So what Shylock's trying to get at is, in other words, you treat me bad, but you need me. I'm center to you. You try to put me to the margins, but what I do, you depend on personally, and your whole economy depends on me. And you don't want to admit that. Because you're sort of embarrassed and you sort of got these weird anxieties about money. You love it, you hate it, you're not sure. Is it good, is it bad, right? So you need me. You keep trying to push me to the margin, but you need me. More than that, you created me. Your mistreatment made me who I am. And also his job was created out of the emerging capitalism. They, they need what he does. Shakespeare goes a long way toward, you know, the, Oliver Twist is anti-Semitic. There's no question. Merchant of Venice, I'm not sure. Because Shakespeare goes a long way to try to show Elizabethan society, you're marginalizing these people, but you need these people. You're, you, you, everything depends on these people, and you're mistreating them. Most famously, in the speech that you have all heard, where Shylock, defending himself, says, I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same hurt food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. So Shakespeare going a long way to try to say, we are marginalizing that which we depend on because we are uncomfortable with the idea of money and commodifying everything. Fagin and Shylock represent our anxieties about the way money works and the role money has in our life. So we love them and we hate them. You also see the commodification of love and of relationships in Portia. She is commodified repeatedly. If you know the play in the little casks, you know, that the lovers have to pick in order to pick the right one, their gold, silver, lead, right? All of that tie makes Portia a commodity. Back to Oliver Twist. Oliver becomes the consummate commodity in, in the book. Um, I'm going to give you a plot summary. I'm going to try to make it understandable. The story goes on. Uh, Oliver goes out with the artful dodger who then pickpockets a man named Brownlow. Oliver gets blamed for it, taken to court where he faints. Brownlow takes him home. Oliver wakes up in a suburban paradise. Right? Like, there's food, people are nice to him, he's got nice clothes, he's got a soft bed. Right? Heaven. Right? Suburbia is heaven. Who'd thought? Right? But Fagin wants him back because he's afraid Oliver is going to tell. But also because he's got a financial value at stake. There's a man named Monks, who we later find out is Oliver's half-brother. They have the same father. Oliver is the result of that father's affair. Monks will pay Fagin a lot of money to get Oliver, because he wants to get rid of Oliver. Otherwise, Oliver, if his identity is revealed, stands to inherit part of their father's fortune. So Fagin sends Nancy to get him back. Nancy is a prostitute who lives with one of Fagin's friends named Bill Sykes. Nancy finds Oliver, brings him back to Fagin. Bill Sykes then takes Oliver on a robbery. Oliver is caught by a family named the Maylies, 
who have an adopted daughter named Rose, but nobody knows who Rose's parents are. Can you tell where this is going? She event we eventually find out that Rose is Oliver's aunt, his mother's sister. So in this book, Oliver's passed back and forth as commodity. Right? It's, it's, he goes from... He goes from uh, he, what? My notes go somewhere, got kind of confused somehow. He goes back and forth from Fagan to the Brownlows, from back to Fagan, back to the Maleys, so from the slums to the suburbs, from the, uh, back to the slums, back to the suburbs, right? He's passed around like a commodity, just as money is, right? Money that flows from the suburbs to the slums, back to the suburbs, right? It goes through the rich man's hand, it goes through the beggar's hand. Oliver becomes this ultimate commodity, passed back and forth, back and forth. And you see that all the way through the, all the, way through the, um, the book, Oliver as Commodity. You also see it in some of the adaptations. Of, of the play. It's an interesting moment. Um, this is done in 1968, summer of love, right, where all the baby boomers go to San Francisco and reject materialistic culture and say, let's just live simply. That is, until they quit doing that and founded high-tech companies and became billionaires. <laughs> right, and in the middle of this culture comes this movie about poor orphans. And it is a very odd scene, especially in the original sta stage production. Right? You have to imagine this happening on stage. You have a rich audience watching middle-class actors pretend to be poor people, pretending to be rich people for the amusement of rich people. And it is a way of diminishing the tensions of capitalism, which was very much under attack in 1968. Right? So, oh look, see, they're poor, but they're singing. <laughs> they're happy, right? And it's way out of sync with what's going on with the culture, right? A year before, in 1967, The Graduate came out. What's the memorable line in The Graduate? Plastics, right? Get rich with plastics, right? It's all about rejecting materialism. Bonnie and Clyde, 1967. The rich stealing from, or the poor stealing from the rich, right? So here in this, is this movie, right, that's out of sync. And in it, Oliver is still being made a commodity sold for the price of a theater seat. Well, as the story unwinds and Oliver's identity is revealed and he finds out that, his, that Rose is his aunt and he's adopted by Mr. Brownlow and Fagin is punished. That's kind of how it ends. But in the last third of the novel, Dickens gives his antidote to the darker sides of capitalism. And it's not a political antidote. It's not, it's not a structural one. It's two things, mercy and relationship, which ultimately in The Merchant of Venice is also Shakespeare's answer. Summed up in Portia's great speech, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tons I could say about that, but I'm going to just kind of finish with Oliver Twist. Mercy and relationship. Let's start with mercy. Where we see that most is in the character of Nancy, who becomes a Christ figure as she protects Oliver. At one point, she points to wounds she's received, trying to protect Oliver from Bill Sykes. It's sort of a Christ figure. She goes to Mr. Brownlow and gives him evidence that helps uncover Oliver's real identity. Because she does that, her common-law husband, Bill Sykes, murders her. Dickens was famous for reading the passage of Nancy's murder. In fact, he, he would do it in dramatic fashion and he would sweat and there'd be a doctor nearby to take his pulse because he'd get so worked up and audiences would shriek and women would faint, literally. Right? And his relatives blamed this thing. He'd do it over and over and blamed it. Uh, on, on, uh, blamed his early death on his doing that. So I'm going to read it to you. I'm probably not going to be able to make you shriek, though. <laughs> he finds out what she's done. 
and goes to her and wakes her up. She's sleeping, and she says, Bill, said the girl in a low, low voice of alarm, why do you look like that at me? The robber sat regarding her for a few seconds with dilated nostrils and heaving breast, and then grasping her by the head and throat, dragged her into the middle of the room, and looking once toward the door, placed his heavy hand upon her mouth. Bill, grasped the girl, wrestling with the strength of mortal fear. I, I, I won't scream, I won't, not once. Hear me, speak, tell me, what have I done? You know, you she-devil, returned the robber, suppressing his breath. You were watched tonight. Every word you said was heard. Bill, cried the girl, striving to lay her head upon his breast. The gentleman and the dear lady, that's Brownlow and Rose, told me tonight of a home in some foreign country where I could end my days in solitude and peace. Let me see them again and beg them on my knees to show the same mercy and goodness to you. So there again, mercy becomes redemption. Let us both leave this dreadful place and far apart lead better lives and forget how we have lived except in prayers and never see each other more. It's never too late to repent. They told me so. I feel it now. But we must have time, a little, little time. The housebreaker freed one arm and grasped his pistol. The certainty of immediate detection if he fired flashed across his mind even in the midst of his fury and he beat it twice with all the force he could summon upon the upturned face that almost touched his own. She staggered and fell, nearly blinded with the blood that rained down from a deep gash in her forehead. But raising herself with difficulty on her knees, drew from her bosom a white handkerchief, Rose Maley's own, and holding it up in her folded hands as high towards heaven as her feeble strength would allow, breathed one prayer for mercy to her maker. It was a ghastly figure to look upon. The murderer, staggering backward to the wall and shutting out the sight with his hand, seized a heavy club and struck her down. He then kind of sits down and just stares until dawn. And it said he had not moved. He had been afraid to stir. There had been a moan and motion of the hand, and with terror added to rage, had struck and struck and struck again. Once he threw a rug over it, but it was worse to fancy the eyes and imagine them moving towards him than to see them glaring upward, as if watching the reflection of pool of gore that quivered and danced in the sunlight on the ceiling. He had plucked it off again, and there was the body, mere flesh and blood no more, but such flesh and so much blood. Direct allusion to Macbeth. Who'd have thought the old man had so much blood in him? Nancy dies to save Oliver. She's the prostitute who becomes the Christ figure in the book. And there's an awful, I'm not going to go into it, but there's an awful lot of playing off of Rose, the poor orphan who's innocent, Nancy, the prostitute. They're linked in a lot of different ways. Um, Nancy escapes being commodified. Literally, she is the woman that people pay to use, right? She escapes that by sacrificing herself to purchase redemption and mercy for Oliver. The Brownlows and the Maleys do the same thing. They show mercy. They put their money, money's just a tool, they put it to good use and redeem Oliver out of poverty. And this is very personal for Dickens because he came very close to becoming Fagin or one of the street urchins in this book when he was 12. So he's issuing a plea for capitalism to be tempered with mercy. The other thing that is the answer to the darker sides of capitalism for Dickens is relationship. If the downside of relationship, as we've seen, is it commodifies, if the downside of capitalism is it commodifies relationships, for Dickens, relationship ultimately can have more power. And you see that in spades in Great Expectations, where after Pip's expectations have failed, what redeems him is reconnecting with his, old, his uncle, Joe. In this story, Rose, Oliver's aunt, is in love with a man named Harry, who's rich. And she won't marry him because he's rich, and she doesn't want to be seen as a gold digger or doesn't want to walk that fine line between marrying for money and prostitution. So she won't marry him because he's rich and she's poor. 
So you know what Harry does? He gives away all of his wealth. So he becomes poor, so then Rose can marry him. It is an unexpected plot twist. Right? The happily ever after is not that she marries the rich prince, she marries the pauper, which is rare in literature, especially 19th century literature. Think of Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, where she says, I have to admit that I first fell in love with him when I saw his wonderful estate at Pemberley. Right? <laughs> that that, that, that the, usually, Jane Eyre, usually you get the rich guy. Right? It all works out okay. But Harry, like Nancy, escapes commodification of relationship by sacrificing himself, giving up all of his wealth, just like God gives up his wealth to come to us in Jesus. Right? It's a relational answer. Same for Oliver. He actually doesn't end up with that much money. By the time his father's estate is divided between he and monks, there's not that much left. So Brownlow adopts him, and they move to the country to be near Rose and Harry. But it's the, in their relationship that they find, um, that they find joy and they find redemption. Mr. Brownlow adopted Oliver as his son, removing with him and the old housekeeper to within a mile of the parsonage house where his dear friends resided. He gratified the only remaining wish of Oliver's warm and earnest heart and thus linked together a little society whose condition approached as nearly to one of perfect happiness as can ever be known in this changing world. For Dickens... Ultimately, the answer is, uh, to the problems of capitalism is relationship. It's, it's, it's love. And love in Dickens and in The Merchant of Venice, love, like money, can make more love. Just like in The Merchant of Venice, lending money at interest creates more money, love in The Merchant of Venice and in Oliver Twist creates more love. And so is a counterforce to the corrupting influences of money. And I hear, I hear I think Dickens gets at something profound and very Christian. What he's saying is at its heart, poverty is a relational problem. It's, 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 it's not, it's a problem in relationships. It's not a problem in the economy. It's not a problem in capitalism. It's a problem of relationship. Um, whether it's spiritual poverty, which is our lack of relationship with God, or economic poverty, which is a breakdown in relationship in communities where people aren't supporting and sustaining each other in a way that can help them get out of capitalism or out of, out of poverty. They're not showing that capitalism tempered with mercy that helps people get out of their circumstances. Dickens does not conceive of reform as political reform or systems being reformed. The workhouse, that's his idea of systems. They, he doesn't trust them. It tr relationship is the solution, which is fundamentally Christian. Our problem is relational, not being connected to God and others. So God provides a relational answer by coming himself in, Dick, in, in, in Dickens, in Jesus. And for Dickens, this is really important. He spent his whole life trying to escape the trauma of poverty and become a wealthy man, and he made it. He became very wealthy. Uh, but so much of his writing is about trying to escape wealth. And instead, and the power it holds over us, and instead find contentment in a simple life, like Brownlow and Oliver do, that is marked by relationship rather than money. You see it in Great Expectations, again, with Joe and with Pip. That ultimately money is not salvation as much as Dickens as devoted his life to it, and he longs to get out of that trap of the fear that he's got to have more and more money and instead find salvation in relationship. And that's the tension of money, right? Once our needs are met, it actually begins to take away from the things that give us real joy, like relationship. We spend more and more time trying to get money and keep money rather than devoting ourselves to the people in our lives. Now, the place we see this, and this is where I'm going to end, is in the character of Mr. Bumble. 
Mr. Bumble is the parish beadle. He oversees the workhouse where Oliver, where he, he was so mean to Oliver. He ends up marrying a widow who runs the orphanage. And it's kind of comic, and I'm going to read a couple of scenes. When he goes to court her, the widow at one point, she has to leave the room just for a little bit. And it says that when she left, Mr. Bumble's contact, conduct on being left to himself was rather inexplicable. He opened the closet, counted the teaspoons, weighed the sugar tongs, closely inspected the silver milk pot to ascertain that it was genuine metal, and having satisfied his curiosity on these points, put on his cocked hat cornerwise and danced with much gravity four distinct times around the table. Having gone through this very extraordinary performance, he took off the cocked hat again and spreading himself before the fire with his back towards it, seemed to be mentally engaged in taking an exact inventory of all the furniture. Next time we see him, he has married her. And we pick his story up again two months after his wedding. And he's thinking to himself, and tomorrow two months it was done, said Mr. Bumble with a sigh. It seems an age. <laughs> Mr. Bumble might have meant that he had concentrated a whole existence of happiness into the short space of eight weeks, but the sigh, there was a vast deal of meaning in that sigh. I sold myself, said Mr. Bumble, pursuing the same train of thought, for six teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a milk pot with a small quality of second-hand furniture and 20 pounds in money. I went very reasonable. Cheap. Dirt cheap. <laughs> so, right, like the total commodification of love and relationship, right? Cheap, cried a shrill voice in Mr. Bumble's ear. You would have been dear at any price, and dear enough I paid for you. Lord above knows that. Are you, this is Mrs. Bumble, are you going to sit there snoring all day, inquired Mrs. Bumble. I am going to sit here as long as I think proper, ma'am, rejoined Mr. Bumble. And although I was not snoring, I shall snore, gape, sneeze, laugh or cry as the humor strikes me, such being my prerogative. Your prerogative, sneered Mrs. Bumble with ineffable contempt. I said the word, ma'am, said Mr. Bumble, the prerogative man is to command. And what's the prerogative of a woman in the name of goodness, cried the relict of Mr. Corney deceased. Mr. Corney was her dead husband, right? To obey, ma'am, thundered Mr. Bumble. Your late unfortunate husband should have taught you that, and then perhaps he might still have been alive, and I wish he were, the poor man. <laughs> so she at that starts to cry. But tears were not the thing to find their way to Mr. Bumble's soul. His heart was waterproof. Like washable beaver hats that improve with rain, his nerves were rendered stouter and more vigorous by showers of tears, which, being tokens of weakness and so far tacit admissions of his own power, pleased and exalted him. Now, Mrs. Corney, that was, had tried the tears because, well, they were less troublesome than a manual assault, but she was quite prepared to make trial of the latter mode of proceeding, as Mr. Bumble was not long in discovering. The first proof he experienced of the fact was conveyed in a hollow sound immediately succeeded by the sudden flying of his hat to the opposite end of the room. This preliminary proceeding laying bare his head, the expert lady clasping him tightly round the throat with one hand, inflicted a shower of blows dealt with singular vigor and dexterity upon it with the other. This done, she created a little variety by scratching his face and tearing his hair, and having by this time inflicted as much punishment as she deemed necessary for the offense, she pushed him over a chair, which was luckily well situated for the purpose, and defied him to talk about his prerogative again if he dared. <laughs> it is actually a comic version of Nancy's murder. Right? It's actually a comic version of exactly what happens to, to Nancy. Nancy, the woman who sells herself for 
love, right? Mr. Bumble, the man who sold himself for some teaspoons. He starts walking around the house after the beating, but the measure of his degradation was not yet full. After making a tour of the house and thinking for the first time that the poor laws really were too hard on people and that men who ran away from their wives, leaving them chargeable to the parish, ought in justice to be visited with no punishment at all, but rather rewarded as meritorious individuals who had suffered much. Mr. Bumble came to a room where some of the female paupers were usually employed in washing the parish linen, whence the sound of voices in conversation now proceeded. He discovers that his wife is there with the washing women, and she proceeds to beat him again in front of the pauper washing women. So what could Mr. Bumble do? He looked dejectedly around and slunk away, and as he reached the door, the titterings of the paupers broke into shrill chuckle of irrepressible delight. It wanted but this. He was degraded in their eyes. He had lost caste and station before the very paupers. He had fallen from the height and pomp of beetleship to the lowest depth of the most snubbed hen peckery. All in two months, said Mr. Bumble, filled with dismal thoughts. Two months, no more than two months ago, I was not only my own master, but everyone else's, so far as the parochial workhouse was concerned. And now, it was too much. Mr. Bumble boxed the ears of the boy who opened the gate for him, for he had reached the portal in his reverie and walked distractedly into the street. He sold his manhood. He sold his self-respect. In the end, he is severely punished. Uh, at the very end, he and, Mr., uh, he and Mrs. Bumble conspire together uh, to uh, help monks hide Oliver's identity. There's a locket that reveals Oliver's identity. Mrs. Bumble gets it and gives it to monks, and they destroy it, which is a criminal offense. So when all of this comes out, Brownlow is talking to Mr. Bumble, and Mr. Bumble says, I hope, said Mr. Bumble, looking about him with great ruefulness as Mr. Grimwig disappeared with the two old women, I hope this unfortunate little circumstance will not deprive me of my parochial office. Indeed it will, replied Mr. Brownlow. You make up your mind to that and think yourself well blessed of it. It was Mrs. Bumble. She would do it, urged Mr. Bumble, first looking around to ascertain that his partner had left the room. That's no excuse, replied Mr. Brownlow. You were present on the occasion of the destruction of that locket and indeed are the more guilty of the two. In the eye of the law, for the law supposes that your wife acts under your direction. <laughs> if the law supposes that, said Mr. Bumble, squeezing his hat emphatically in both hands, the law is an ass, the law is an idiot. If that's the eye of the law, the law is a bachelor. <laughs> for Dickens... Ultimately, money is not evil, it's dangerous, and it's a tool. It can be used for good, as Mr. Brownlow uses it, or it can lead to corruption or even worse, comic humiliation. By robbing us of what makes us human, which is our heart, heart connections. Brownlow and Oliver, Harry and Rose, they are examples of people who escape the endless cycle of more that appears on the very first pages of the book and drives the whole novel, dominates Fagin, dominates monks. And that one word, more, sums up both the promise and the peril of money. Money can get you more. More food, more shelter, even open up a space for love to happen. Right? It, it, but more can also dominate us because we always want more and more. And there may be things we don't even know about that we sometimes want. Right? So that one, to the one-word problem of more, Dickens gives a one-word solution. Enough. And what Oliver discovers in relationship, is enough is enough. With Mr. Brownlow, with the others, uh, with, with his friends, and I'll read just the very end of the book. 
Oh, I'm sorry, I already read that, where he says, I'll reread it. I have said that they were truly happy and without strong affection and humanity of heart and gratitude to the... Oh, I didn't read this, sorry. I'll start over again. How Mr. Brownlow went on from day to day, filling the mind of his adopted child with stores of knowledge and becoming attached to him more and more as his nature developed itself and showed the thriving seeds of all he wished him to become. How he traced in him new traits of his early friend that awakened in his own bosom old remembrances, melancholy and yet sweet soothing. How the two orphans tried by adversity remembered its lessons in mercy to others and mutual love and fervent thanks to him who had protected and preserved them. These are all matters which need not to be told. I have said that they were truly happy and without strong affection and humanity of heart and gratitude to the being whose code is mercy and whose great attribute is benevolence to all things that breathe, happiness can never be attained. So to the one word more, Dickens says, enough. He's not rich, but he has enough. And what enough is, is relationship, connection to God, and knowing that you are part of a family and a community. Enough is enough. We don't need more. That's all I got to say. <clears throat> Christina and I thank you for coming. We are always delighted that you come. Encourage you as you leave. If you are, if this is your church home, if not, please don't do this. But if this is your church home, encourage you to help the library out by giving them, uh, by giving to them. <laughs> kind of odd. Money makes the world go round. Money makes our library go around, as a matter of fact. And so, if you could help us out with that, it's what we use to buy new books and all of that. Let me close us in prayer. Jesus, thank you for the relationships you give us. Forgive us for the ways that we get convinced that we need more when what we need is more of each other and more of you. Lord, help us to use money as a tool. It is a great servant but a lousy master and help us to make it serve us, not us serve it. And Lord, help us to use it for mercy and charity and to bring relationship and good things that reflect who you are. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Jackie. Once again, let's thank Scott and Christina for this wonderful evening. Thank you so much. And let's also thank Candace Losh and the entire library team, whom you see buzzing around in the lobby out there, for all the work they do to prepare for this evening. I'm Jackie Smith-Patman. I'm the associate pastor for Christian Growth here at Bell Prez, and I have just a few things I want to share with you. I get the great privilege of telling you a little bit about our library. Our library is an extension of the broader ministries of this church, and we work consistently with the goals and the vision of Bell Press. You might say, well, how does that work? It's a library. I want to share three very, very brief examples, stories, of how this happens. A member of our youth group has a theology class in her high school. One week, she had to write a sermon based on a parable that was assigned to her. She went to her youth group leader for help. She said, I don't know how to do this. What do I do? Her leader said, let's go to the library. So they went, they put some, took some books down from the shelf, they sat by the fire, had a conversation, looked through these resources, and this high school student learned that this parable that she had heard many, many times was always open to something new. There was always something new that she could learn from our library. 
Not too long ago, a man from our community who comes from a non-Christian background ended up in the library. His son was involved in an activity here, and to kill time, he started browsing through the shelves up in the upper rotunda. He found some books on parenting that attracted his attention. And just to make sure, he went to find somebody to say, can I borrow these books? Is that okay? I'm not a part of this community. I don't worship here. I, I'm just here waiting for my son. And he was assured that that was great. And as a result, this church has touched two more lives in Bellevue, a father and a son, through our library ministries. Finally, I have a new intern. She's a student in her last year of studies at Fuller Seminary. I asked her to help me with a project, and she turned to our library for some resources to get some more information. The next time we met, she looked at me with these wide eyes, and she said, you have a great library. I said, yes, we do. Giving youth a deeper appreciation for God's word, reaching out to the community with resources that help people navigate through life, with strategies that are consistent with biblical truth and providing up-to-date and theologically sound resources for anyone who wants to deepen their understanding on matters related to Christian faith. These are only a few ways that our library in two places uh, supports some of the broader ministry goals that we have at Bell Press. Your financial gifts tonight will do much more than just helping us buy a few books. You will help us continue this excellent ministry that touches lives. Please give generously. There are volunteers who will be standing at the doors, and if you're watching online, you can click the giving button on the, at the homepage, and that's true if you're watching the podcast later on. You can go to the homepage and um, click on giving. Be sure you designate other gifts and for the library. Thank you for coming. Please join us for the reception afterwards. Browse through some of our holdings. There are people here to help you. You can check out books tonight. We've also printed some uh, questions in the program. Don't leave this topic here tonight. Continue to talk about it. Talk about it with one another, with friends and family. And we'll see you in 2014. Thank you very much. <laughs>